morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 12th, we are studying Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71. Even as Peter fails in his trial and he denies his Lord, Jesus is faithful in his trial before the Sanhedrin and makes the good confession in the face of mockery and suffering. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as Chaplain and Vice President of Spiritual Life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always love to be here. Let's talk a little context as we get started this morning. We're at the end of Luke 22. What should we know about the context leading up to our text for today? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a familiar story, whether we we know Luke's specifics of it or not. This is after the arrest in the Garden of Geth- Gethsemane. I always stumble over that word. Uh, <laughs> um, and before Jesus is, is brought into the various trials before Pilate and Herod and all of those sorts of pieces. So we're going to see Peter uh, confronted with, uh, is he willing to do what he said and stand by Jesus no matter what happens? And we're going to see the opening sort of mock trials that they're going to subject Jesus to here. So like liturgically, uh, this this pericope is, is part of all of our lectionaries uh, as a selection for the Wednesday of Holy Week as we, we get the, the full passion narrative read to us. Um, and in the series C of the three-year lectionary, it's also included for the Sunday of the Passion, which I have to confess was a service I did not know anything about other than it seems to be an additional um, sort of aspect of, of Palm Sunday to give us a, a bigger scope look at the full events of that week leading up to Good Friday. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's right after... It's, it's right after Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the garden, and uh, the disciples have all fled and have been scattered, except for John and Peter, who, who follow kind of behind. Although John isn't mentioned in Luke's account, um, that's only in John's gospel. We do know that he's there. And then uh, essentially the Pharisees here have made their, their, their move to bring an end to what they perceive as the threat of Jesus' ministry. That's, that's what sets the scene. All right. So the scene has been set. Jesus has been arrested. We are going to follow his story, but first Luke's going to tell us what happens with Peter. And we've already gotten a a foretaste of what's going to happen. Now he relates what happens. This is Luke 22, beginning at verse 54. Then they seized him, seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. 
But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We'll pause there. That takes us through verse 62 of the chapter. So Pastor Jones, before we get into the ordeal with Peter, take us into the context. So they go to the high priest's house. What should we know about the location they're choosing for the trial? Uh, well, yeah. So the high priest would have been uh, in charge of, you know, sort of the the, the religious aspects and, the, and the, the Jewish people there. Um, the crowd that takes him there is, is probably the temple guards. Um, Jesus is taken to what they say is the house of the high priest. We don't know for sure um, which one is is being mentioned here, but we know throughout the Gospels there are sort of two men that are mentioned as the high priest, right? That's Annas and Caiaphas. Um, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas and was the high priest approved by the Roman government after they had removed Annas from the office. So it's generally understood that while Caiaphas held the public office of the of the priest, the people still looked to the judgments and wisdom of Annas. And so here we don't know whose home Jesus is taken to, but it's it's certainly possible that it's a, an entire estate that belongs to Annas and then Caiaphas lives in the same compound with his wife's family. Uh, regardless of these specifics, though, uh, this seems to be an unofficial trial to lay out the charges that they're going to bring against Jesus before the full assembly of the Sanhedrin, which can only take place during daylight hours. Now, the fact that it is night is also emphasized by the fact that there's a fire here in the middle of the courtyard. Why? I mean, just talk, talk a little bit of the fire before we talk about Peter. What is the fact that Luke tells us there's a fire? What what kind of color does that add to the text? Yeah, yeah. Um, it says they kindled a fire. So we don't know exactly who who they is other than it seems to be connected to the, the people that were present during the arrest of, of Jesus. Um, it seems Peter has sat down alongside some that were present uh, at the garden with him. There could be guards and soldiers and whoever else present there, but certainly those around the fire had seen Jesus and his disciples clearly enough to be able to identify Peter. And so I think that detail of the fire here is intriguing because it lends, one, it lends credibility to the narrative. It's just a, a, a little detail, but then it also shows it would have been the middle of the night. So it's, it's being truthful in how it's laying out events. And so the fire would have provided the light necessary for the servant girl to recognize Peter. But also, I, I think it gives us a little perspective on the climate of Jerusalem. Now, maybe this is just me, but when I hear about the Holy Land, I hear about Jerusalem and Israel, I, I tend to picture desert and heat. Um, I know the climate there is certainly warmer than the northern plains of North Dakota, where I currently live, but they still get cold temperatures. I mean, even a blizzard is mentioned in scripture, but the fire here would have provided warmth for the people in the, in the dead of the night. And just because I wanted to, you know, sort of reinforce this idea, the, the, the reality of the text for myself, I checked the temperatures for Jerusalem over this last week, uh, and they've been 
having mid thirties to, to high forties overnight all week. So that's certainly cold enough to want a fire. I can, I can get behind that. Um, and it's also, uh, we're at the same time of year as, as this account takes place. We're only a, a few weeks away from good Friday. And so details like this, I think are really, they're, they're, they're helpful. They, they, they bring the, the scriptures to life in, in more vivid ways. And so, yeah, that detail of they kindled a fire, we have just a throwaway away line, but can, means so much to us. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's, it's good for us to imagine these things in our minds. And so see yeah. that fire, see the people gathered around, you know, imagine yourself shivering a little bit because it's chilly. You're trying to find a way to warm up. You're going to go closer to the fire. And, and what proves to be ironic then, particularly for Peter is that the closer he moves to the fire, if he wants to get warm, it allows him to be seen. And that is pretty obviously not something he's looking for at the moment. So let's let's talk about what happens with Peter here. It, we know there's threefold denial. Yeah. Take us into some of the details we need to see. Sure. So in, in verse 57, uh, they use the word for, deny, for denied. The Greek word there is arneamai. Uh, in Greek, this is used as a direct opposite of the word homologeo, which we use as to confess. So the passage here sets Peter's actions in direct contrast to his words when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? We have an incredible reversal here. The great confessor becomes the great denier. Peter, the one upon whose confession that Christ builds his church, now becomes an anti-confessor of Christ. We're often called on to deny ourselves for the sake of Christ. But in this instance, Peter denies Christ to preserve himself. And he does so very strongly. We have the strongest Greek negation here possible. It's ume. It's I don't know him with all of his being. Um, just an incredible strength behind his denial and to be the exact opposite of, of what we think of Peter as that great confession of faith. And then um, we get some some further little details in here. The verse 59, the people identify Peter as a Galilean. Likely his accent gave him away. Some have speculated that it's the guttural sounds that were pronounced differently between the Aramaic in Jerusalem and in Galilee. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever know those things for sure, but we do know that the two regions were inhabited by different ethnic groups. When the region of Galilee was resettled after the Assyrian exile, the population was largely Gentile immigrants. And so this would have resulted uh, in Galilee having that nickname of the Gentiles, right? We even have that referenced in the Gospels a few places. So I think an accent is a fair assumption since the influx of various language groups would likely cause uh, variations in cadence and pronunciation. So they'd be able to recognize him by his voice. But then Peter's sure. Well, that. and I, yeah, I, I think that that really, I mean, that's something that we can relate to. You know, generally yeah. speaking, if someone from Texas shows up in North Dakota, <laughs> there's going to be people kind of scratching their head and say, "You're not from around here, are you?" And, yeah. and I mean, again, that's just something very real yeah. Yeah. about the way that they identify Peter's Galilean. Yeah, no, it's yeah, exactly. It's fun. It, it it brings these these extra facets of of scripture to life for us in real ways. Helps us connect. Um, but you brought up the threefold denial, and that's really brought out in poetic ways as, as you think back across scripture. Um, it has, Peter's here has an intensification of association. So first he denies knowing Jesus specifically. He denies knowing the man. Second, his denial is 
being a part of Jesus's disciples or followers. I'm not with them. And then the third denial is that is to not even be from the same geographic region as the accused, mm. right? I'm not with the Galileans. You don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So the circle of connection gets larger and further apart with each denial. It actually, so then I said through all of scripture, it reminds me of Psalm 1, where we have a similar sort of intensification of relationship. Psalm 1.1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. So the psalm intensifies from a position of movement and flexibility to become one more entrenched and intimate as the, the verse goes. Peter's denial of Christ goes in the opposite direction from a close, intimate association with Christ to the most distant that he can possibly think of here. Hmm. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, and this is in the opposite way, but in the, the baptismal liturgy, when we ask, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways, you know, that's yeah. a, it's a threefold thing. I'm not sure if that was ever, if that was intentional with the threefold confession or, you know, denial of the devil and his works and a confession of Christ, but it is a very similar idea in terms of the anticipation. I don't want anything to do with the devil or his works or his ways. And of course here, Peter's denial is a, a tragic because of who he's denying and he's, yes. he's denying Jesus, all his works, all his ways, even, you know, I mean, it's, it is a, it's, it's really hard to read and it's really hard to watch because you can, I mean, at least for me, I can kind of picture Peter squirming each time yeah. and you're like, come on, Peter, you know the right answer. You've, <laughs> you've done this before. Yeah. And and each time it's just a such a tragic failure on his part. And I mean, it's it's tragic to watch, watch it happen to Peter and then to realize, you know, had I been there, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you're right, it is it is tragic and it's it's heartbreaking. And we get to almost experience it personally with him, right? As as we go through mm. the end of the the denial here, verses sixty through sixty-two, it, it's a very personal lesson for humility and repentance. And when mm. Peter is confronted with his sin, with his denial of Christ, he weeps out of grief over his faithlessness, he's brought to tears. I look at verse 60 and it says, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered. It's it's heart-wrenching and so personal. I can't prove it, but for me, it feels like this came from Luke talking directly with Peter. And we know they met and had obvious extended contact together. The book of Acts shows us that. And so I, I, I believe the only way we get this kind of detail is from the mouth of the one who lived it, you know, and while I was in that low moment, I looked at him, <laughs> it just, oh, but yeah, regardless of the well, source. And, no. and he, and, and not only that Peter looked at G, uh, not only Peter looking at Jesus, but actually the Lord yes, turns yes. and looks at Peter, yeah. which is, oh man, I mean. He and this is one of those places oh. where I, I I wish that that Luke would have recorded maybe the emotion or the intent behind it. I'm not sure that it's it's necessary, but like what what was that look meant to convey? I don't. What do you think, Pastor Jones? What was he What was he trying to do with that look at Peter? Yeah, I I, I mean I I only go to compassion, you know, on understanding what Peter is feeling, knowing that I mean he told him it was going to happen. Uh, and so knowing that, yep, this is, this is where it is. This is where it gets hard. Uh, to me, it sort of brings to mind the same sort of 
feeling as um, when when he when he Jesus goes back and he knows Lazarus has died, right? And he's, he, he sees all the people, how, how heartbroken they are, how sorrowful, sorrowful they are. And it says, and Jesus wept. Um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's compassion for, for what this pain that they're, that Peter is going through. That's, that's how I read it. Um, yeah. yeah. I, and I think. So, so take us then me. into yeah <laughs> what, what happens with Peter then in terms of the, that interaction with just the look, uh, what happens to Peter, how he reacts to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we're, I'm in good company reading it that way. Um, as one of deep remorse and repentance. And I think the tears are the proof because the church fathers have some beautiful sentiments about it too. Uh, in his exposition on the gospel of Luke, Ambrose writes, why did Peter weep? Guilt took him by surprise. Peter grieved and wept because he felt astray or felt he went astray as a man. Tears may wash the offense that is a shame to confess aloud. Tears deal with pardon and shame. Tears speak guilt without fear and confess sin without the obstacle of shame. And then Augustine says of Peter's response in, in a sermon that he gave, he says, to wash away the sin of denial, Peter needed the baptism of tears. From where would he get this unless the Lord gave him this too? That is why the Apostle Paul gave this advice to his people concerning deviant opinions and about how they should deal with them. He said they must be correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. So even repentance is a gift from God. The heart of the proud is hard ground. It is softened for repentance only if it is rained on by God's grace. Just beautiful. Uh, and, and, and then to connect to what Peter is going through, how much more gently can you correct someone than with a mere look? Jesus looking to Peter in the moment of the denial, the moment of that grief, brings the softening grace that Peter needs to humbly repent and be brought back into God's mercy. Mm. And, and yeah, I mean, a look of a look of both law and gospel at the same time. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, like Peter, it, Luke tells us that Peter remembers what Jesus said, mm -hmm. before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. Yeah. And so that, you know, that look is a reminder of what Jesus has said and, and probably a reminder of that whole interaction. Yeah. How Peter at that moment said, no, it's never going to be that way, Lord. I'll never do that. And you can, I mean, it doesn't take much to, to realize the sorrow, the regret, the remorse, the contrition that Peter has. And so certainly a, a look of law. And yet at the same time, you know, anytime Jesus looks, I think that you use the word compassion. I think that's the perfect word. I mean, I recall the the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15, yeah. where that father looks and he sees his son while he's a, a long way off. Or when Jesus you know, is walking down the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday and he sees Jerusalem and he, he weeps over the city because of the compassion he's got. Yeah. That, yeah. that look of Jesus is, I mean, it's doing both of those things at the same time. And, and in recalling the words of Jesus for Peter brings him to this moment of, of repentance that then, you know, we got to hold on to this to see how the Lord makes it complete on the other side of his resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. And again, compassion, feeling with someone. I, I think that's the best description I can come up with. And then how I, I love how 
Um, Augustine talks about it as the baptism of tears. Uh, that brings me back to our daily sort of goal, right? Drown the old Adam every day. Remember that we are washed by the blood of Christ in our baptism. That is our new identity. And so we go through this same cycle with Peter on a daily basis. This is the, the pattern of faith. Hmm. Well, let's keep reading in the text, and I know we'll, we'll spend some time toward the end reflecting on all of this devotionally and, and applying these things, but after, the way I like to think about this is Peter's been put on a trial of sorts, and he's failed. Yeah. He's denied. Yeah. Now we're going to see Jesus on trial, and he will succeed. He will make the good confession. So the text continues. We're in Luke 22, now at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Hmm. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 22, verses 63 to 71. So before Jesus is actually put on trial, there's some mockery of Jesus, uh, just to put it mildly, I suppose. Take us into those first couple of verses, 63 to 65. Yeah. So again, the, the, these men that have Jesus in custody, likely part of the temple guard or whatever soldiers, the, the chief priests, people, the Sanhedrin, whatever it is, were able to, to gather around. And they're, they're here um, mishandling Jesus, misunderstanding who he is. And and so again, another source of tragic irony to our narrative, as these men are ridiculing Jesus as a false prophet with mock demands for him to blindly prophesy, it's they who reveal themselves to be the truly blind ones. They don't see the truth. They don't know who they are treating this way. Uh, They have in their custody the divine prophet, the divine priest, the divine king of all creation. And so these events serve not just to to show the reader, you know, those of us who already know who Jesus is, they don't just show us what's going on. They don't just show us that irony. They actually also serve to fulfill some prophecy. Uh, If we look at Isaiah 11, 2 through 4, we hear this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Oh, he, <laughs> I, I mean, again, he, they put a blindfold on him and tell him to prophesy, but that's exactly what he does. He doesn't need his eyes to 
to know what is right to know what's going on. He doesn't need to hear from their specific mouths the the blasphemy that's happening. He already knows because he is the word. Um, it goes beyond even just the obvious there. I read that there's an old rabbinic teaching that the true Messiah would make judgments based on, not on sight and not on hearing, but on smell. That seems pretty weird. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a kind of continuation of the Old Testament passages where it talks about the smell of the sacrifices entering God's nostrils. And as the Messiah is God's anointed one, he has that same sort of interaction. I don't know. It's not really important how the Messiah makes his judgments. What is important is that we do not remain blind like those soldiers, uh, blind in our sin. So we cannot clearly recognize the Messiah and the judgments of mercy he so lovingly offers to us. We need to make sure we are not the ones that are disillusioned. We have to be able to see the word for what it is offering us. Mm. I, I've never really, I'd never really thought about connecting this text with Isaiah chapter 11, but I really like that connection about, you know, that he will not judge by what his eyes see. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it, it adds to that irony that exists here in, in this text. And I, I want to talk more about this on the other side of the break, but the, you know, there's the irony on the one hand, that they should be doing the exact opposite yeah. of what they're doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything that they're doing, they should be doing the opposite. Peter was the same way in the previous yeah. text. Yeah. What he's doing, he should be doing the opposite. What the soldiers are doing here, they should be doing the opposite. But then the the added irony that I think is what you're pointing out is that even in what they do, they actually prove Jesus to be the one they don't think he is. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> I mean, and so there's there's the double layer of irony that, you know, they don't believe he's the, the Christ and they think that by doing this, they can prove he's not the Christ. And yet by doing it, they actually are showing him to be the Christ. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's remarkable, <laughs> the irony that's there and the way that the Lord is able to, and we've seen this elsewhere. I think it's, it's a little more prominent in John than the other gospels, but it's in Luke, how the Lord ends up drawing these true statements from people who don't believe in him. And, oh, sure. and that's what, what ends up happening here. Yeah. I think we get that in, in, in all the gospels, really. Um, I mean, you can even look at grammatical constructions and there's places where, People ask things like, well, he can't be the Christ, can he? They're expecting a negative answer. uh, And yet they are the source for now whole villages to believe in things like that. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to see it in the next, in the end of the passage too. the, the way the, the Sanhedrin questions him, they're saying he is who he says he is because they're saying it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's remarkable. Non-answer to actually answer. That's right. That's right. So we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter 22 with Pastor Rick Jones. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 12th. We're studying Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71 with Pastor Rick Jones. He serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, before we move on to the trial before the council and the coming of day, I want to talk a little bit more about that irony that's there in in verses 63 through 65. We've talked about the irony in the sense that they end up showing that he is the Christ despite not believing it. And then the other irony that I think is just this text is saturated with is that they do the exact opposite of everything that they should be doing. You know, instead of instead of beating Jesus, they should be worshiping Jesus. Yes. Instead of blindfolding Jesus, they should be desiring that he look on them in mercy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, and again, in that sense, it's this scene too is tragic and heart, heart wrenching, much like Peter, because you, you see Peter and you like, don't do it, Peter. <laughs> and the same thing here, because you know that these men, they should be worshiping Jesus and they just, they twist it and turn it entirely on its head. It's just so hard to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people that are supposed to be serving truth, right? Justice in this yeah. case. Uh, that's what they're charged to do. And instead, they're bringing about the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. Uh, the one truly innocent one is about to be condemned. And uh, yeah, it is. It is It is true irony in that they're doing everything the opposite of what they should be doing. And then even in their mock attempts, they're actually proving it correct. Um prophesy yeah. tell us who hit you it's like well yeah he he, he could but <laughs> right well and and, and <laughs> even there you know like you should want to hear the words yes, that come yeah. forth from jesus lips yeah. N- not by way of mockery but for the blessing that they would bestow absolutely. upon you absolutely you want to hear from the messiah you want to hear from the lord's anointed one yeah yeah i mean over and over again this text it, it serves to show us who jesus actually is but but by that way of irony by or, or contrast if you want to think it about think about it like that that as you see these people interact with jesus they should do the exact opposite yeah and and that's where you know we as christians okay so instead of denying jesus how can i confess him yeah. instead of mocking jesus or or you know blindfolding him and how can I, how can I hear his words? That's, that's where one of the ways I think we can apply this. Yeah, I know. I think I I, I agree. And it's really, you know, now that I think about it in, in this sort of light, it, it, uh, it's bringing to mind the opening of John's gospel, the prologue, right? He came to this world, but they did not recognize him. He is the light and, and we are that trapped in darkness that no one can see him for who he is. Yeah, yeah, and it and it only gets darker, yes. even as the day comes. Yes, as even the as the day enters. comes. <laughs> so, so take us into now the this is I guess the official trial. Everything's been leading up to this. So, to take us into verse sixty six, what's what's going to happen now? Sure. So the the passage now shows us the first of what are going to be four trials of Jesus presented in Luke's gospel. So this is the first one here before the Sanhedrin. The second is going to be before Pontius Pilate. Uh, the third will be with Herod, and then the fourth will be a final trial again with Pontius Pilate. Luke mentions here that the Sanhedrin does not assemble until dawn has arrived, and this is an acknowledgment of the legality of this trial. So the Sanhedrin uh, could only meet and pass its verdicts during daylight hours, and as the Sanhedrin is the collected body of Jewish leaders from both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, Fulfilling the letter of the law was of tantamount concern to them, right? This is how we make ourselves holy, by fulfilling these things exactly as written. So in this instance, 
even what's going to be a kangaroo court must wait for daylight. That's, that's what's being put into motion here. Uh, they're bringing him in before that assembled body. Uh, some people, uh, not even some people, I think it's most of us, the role of the authority of the Jewish leaders is often difficult to understand because we don't have a similar sort of structure where we have this big government, the Roman government, but then there's this local religious government. What's going on here? Um, so if the Romans are the political ruling authority, what does the Sanhedrin really do? There can't be two separate governments, can there? I don't think so. I don't think that'd really work out for any sense of order or justice. So the closest analogy I can ever come up with for our current American situation uh, would be with the dynamics between Caesar and the Sanhedrin is that of our federal government and like native tribal bodies, like the, the, the reservation authorities. If it, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, I think it gives us a window into how this might have worked. The Roman government would be the equivalent of our federal government. Right? The buck stops with them for keeping the peace, serving citizens, and administering justice. They are there to carry out the, the law for everybody that is their citizens. The native governing bodies and tribal jurisdictions would be the analogy for the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders. They have some localized authority and, and given some special allowances based on geographic, cultural, and ethnic considerations, right? like the reservations being able to have casinos and native peoples being able to establish their own means of organizations for schools and social services and things like that. Um, for the first century Israel, uh, this meant ultimately the final authority would have been with Rome, so for things like capital punishment, but the Sanhedrin was uh, given a certain level of power. They didn't have that authority, again, to put people to death, for example, but um, they, they, they could administer justice based on minor offenses or minor punishments as they saw fit within their ethnic and religious sort of rules. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's helpful to know because it does explain why, why are these four trials yeah. here? You yeah. know, what, what's the point? And so what we're seeing here is the Sanhedrin, they're the ones that have the problem with Jesus all along yes. anyways. Yes. And so they need to have a trial for their own sakes. As you said, they're, they're going to do it legally. That's going to happen during daylight when they give this final verdict. But well, okay, so they make their judgment, and we've read it already, but then why do they need to go on into chapter 23 and bring them to the Romans at all? Well, that's that's where these dynamics come into yeah, play. exactly. And so it, it's helpful to, to realize kind of how those things work together, and it, it helps us appreciate some of the, the back and forth. And, you know, what's, what's I don't, it's maybe not unique, but what's interesting about this is that there's, there's religious and political things happening at the same time. And, and I mean, I think for a, a lot of this, you know, it seems like it's a religious battle in nature. It certainly is for our Lord's perspective. He's, he's out to teach the truth about his word. But then there's political aspects that come into play, too. And it, when these things get intertwined, it just becomes a very messy situation. And, and we'll see that occur even more as, as the text moves into chapter 23 and in tomorrow's show. So we, we've got the trial before the Sanhedrin. And they seem to start pretty direct. If you're the Christ, tell us. Yeah. And then Jesus in his answer, 
far be it from me to question, but man, I wish it would have been more direct. Why does Jesus answer <laughs> that the way he does? Because I know there's a reason. Why does he do that? Yeah, I, I think, again, some of this is is fulfillment of scripture, right? He'll speak in riddles or, you know, those that don't have ears can't hear and understand. Uh, but, uh, you know, for Jesus, it's always that next level game. So as they question Jesus, he turns the accusations around on them, right? They ask him, to tell them if he is the Christ, but he responds by saying, they wouldn't believe him anyway, right? If I tell you, you won't believe me. So they have they have indeed already made up their minds as to his plight. They, they're going to they're gonna have him executed. They're going to do everything it takes. So when they move from asking about his messiahship uh, to a clear issue of idolatry, claiming to be the son of God, that would put him as equal status with the most high, right? So that's clear blasphemy. They're looking for that straight answer. Uh, instead of Jesus, instead Jesus then responds, "Well, will you say that I am?" Uh, in mm. in plain speech, uh, in the plain speech of it, I don't think that the, that's really much of an admission. But by putting the accusation back in their mouths, um, he's again highlighting the irony of the situation. Right? Well, you've said that that about me. That's actually a good confession. Uh, you don't see it as such. Yeah. They they can't say he's the Son of God, as that would definitely vindicate Jesus and eliminate their charges uh, by calling him a blasphemer. But they they commit the very sin with which they are accusing him. They are misusing his name, misusing his identity. They, they fail to see it. And so they are actually the, the ones blaspheming by denying his divinity. It's, it's, it's incredible. Jesus always turns it back on the person that needs to hear it. Unfortunately, they're only hearing it with law and their hearts seem to be hardened already. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jesus, I mean, he knows that their hearts are hardened. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the gist of how he starts yeah. with, you know, like you said, if I tell you, you're not going to believe if I ask you, you won't answer. And I mean, that's, that's pretty much a recap of what's happened during Holy Week already oh, yeah. I mean, over and over again. These are the people that have come to him or have sent spies to him trying to catch him. Yeah. And he's given very plain answers and they haven't believed it. Yeah. And he's asked them questions and they haven't answered truthfully, or at least not faithfully, according to Scripture. And, and not and so even it, through to the public opinion, right? On Palm Sunday, you know, they tell them, yeah. tell, your peop- tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop saying these things. If they're quiet, the rocks will cry out, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, they, they, they've seen yeah, it before, well, and they can't, they can't accept it. Right. And so, I mean, what's, what's striking here is that, you know, Jesus doesn't play their game. If if you want to say it like that, you know, he's not going to sort of bow to their whim to do things the way they want to do. And yet what, what does strike me is that Jesus still in the midst of that always manages to give the good confession of who he is. You know, I mean, he, he talks about the son of man being seated at the right hand of the power of God. So he's not going to deny the truth either, but he's not going to kind of play into their hands in the way that they want him to. It's a very, on the one hand, it's a very masterful way of, of Jesus making sure that they understand, even though they won't believe it, but they understand who's in charge, what's really happening here and, and still always being perfectly truthful. It's, it's a wonderful thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think sometimes from our perspective, we're like, well, why, why didn't Jesus just prove it to them? Why, why didn't God just carry it out? Uh, with with undeniable evidence, you know he could he could have said something that would have made it clear he he could have done something, um, but really 
that that flies in the face of how God has promised He will act. Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it and I mean, you know. Well, and and the thing about it is, is like he did. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he did miracles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that, and I forget which chapter. I think it's chapter eleven or twelve, where they come asking Jesus for a sign about who He is, yeah. right after He's given them a sign. Yeah. And then, I mean, then there's that just very striking text. That comes at the end of Luke 16 when Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich yes, man. Yes, I was going to bring up that same example. Yeah. Well, then I'll let you go oh, ahead yeah. and say it. Well, it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, at the end of that parable, right, the parable of rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is separated from paradise because he was the idolater, you know. Um, well, send Lazarus to quench my thirst. No, it doesn't work that way. Well, send him back. Send Lazarus back to warn my brothers so they don't end up here with me. And the lesson is if they, they won't believe even if they see someone raised from the dead. And then I don't think it's a coincidence that in John's gospel, we have that very same thing happening with a man named Lazarus. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They see it. And their response is not to, wow, surely this is the son of God. No, their response is we need to kill Lazarus. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what Jesus does attached to it is like, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. So if you, if you won't believe what is said, then no sign at all is going to convince you, even if it's something as spectacular as someone being raised from the dead. And, and here Jesus is speaking to people who have repeatedly rejected that word. And so for him to, you know, just kind of, again, play their game and answer, yes, I'm the Christ. That's not going to do anything other than to confirm them in their unbelief. And so he's not going to answer in that way. He's going to answer in the way that he does almost in a, you know, I mean, I think you can see this with Jesus throughout almost in an attempt to, to somehow touch them yet and, and, and bring them to repentance, even at this late moment, yeah. That they might recognize the you know the gravity of what they've done, and re- I mean they're about to convict the Son of God Himself, yeah. and and by saying it this way, it's almost like Jesus is is trying yet once more to draw them toward Himself in repentance, sure. rather than just give the flat out answer. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't respond in that direct way that would put up a further barrier, right? It would it would be that sort of rebellious answer. And so that would be met with, with further entrenchment. He, he, he's almost trying to respond, you know, it could be read it as he's trying to respond with mercy. Well, you, you've already kind of said this, you've already revealed the truth, giving him, giving them the soft way to, to see the, the truth of, of what's going on. But yeah, they, they, they cannot accept it. Their hearts are that hard and they, they are unrepentant and unwilling to, to be shown the truth. Right. Yeah. They won't, they won't believe what they've already seen and what they've already heard. And so Jesus simply is just going to leave them with that. Now, what do you, what do you, we've talked a little bit about it already, but there's a little more, I think we can say when Jesus responds to their second question, are you the son of God? He says, you say that I am. Mm -hmm. That's one of those moments where I kind of wish we had like a a tone of voice from Jesus (laughs) to be able to hear the way that he says that. What, what does that, because in, I think, at least the first time I read it in English, it's like, well, you say that I am, but mm-hmm. maybe I'm not. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Yeah. How do we understand that answer? You say that I am. Yeah. Well, as I read through the questions and responses, I get, I get the sense that maybe Jesus is using a little sarcasm here. 
uh, one, to not actually incriminate himself, to two, shift the accountability onto his accusers, and to three, provide another ironic reversal for those who do not know the truth of his identity. And can you hear the sarcasm in Jesus' responses? If, if you are the Christ, tell us. Well, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if uh, I ask you, you will not answer. And then they go, are, are you the son of God then? Well, you say that I am. And I know we usually don't think of, of sarcasm, or we usually only think of sarcasm as a negative thing, but I believe it can be used to teach, and especially in situations loaded with, with irony like this. I think, I think we might have a few candidates for divine sarcasm in this exchange, but you know, I, I, I'm not the expert. And like you say, we don't have a tone of voice feature built into, you know, text. <laughs> so um, it's a possibility. I think there might be a few other cases in, when Jesus deals with, you know, the disciples and their their failings. There's probably a lot of holy eye rolls and, and exasperated sighs. But um, here I think we might have some, some sarcasm. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I, I think the one thing we want to make certain, though, that we, we say is that when Jesus says, you say that I am, he's not denying it. Exactly. He, he, is, he is acknowledging the truth, but but not in that way, again, where they can just say, ha, you know, I mean, we, we got you. <laughs> yeah. Rather, he's he's pointing out to them, look, you just said it. You said it. Now, will you believe it? And of course, the answer to that question ends up being no. Yeah. But he points out that the confession has been on their lips. The yeah. words are on their lips. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. And and of course, they choose to to use it as evidence against him to get him put to death. Yeah, it's, 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 that's it's what they choose to do with it. Is, is, is based on this. Um, and it's interesting to me. I, I You look at other translations and things, and they'll actually say, they'll put in Jesus's mouth. They'll put in that last response, they'll say, you are right to say that I am and things like that. And it's like, that's definitely, I think a clear admission, but I, I searched and I did not find any evidence of a textual variant or anything that would justify translating it that way. So then the only other way, I think some people get to, well, how can they be so convinced by this answer? You know, you've heard it from his own mouth and they, they go to that. How does he end the statement? You say that I am. And so mm. Yeah. They, they're jumping to the ego a me as, oh, see, he used the, the Lord's name in vain. He's, he's, he's calling himself the great I am. Now, I, I don't know if that's true. I, you can definitely make an argument for it. Um, I think that's what that might be them, the, the, the Sanhedrin here. It's, it's them grasping at straws. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, the looking at it there in the Greek, the pronouns are there, which I mean, provide that emphasis, you know, you are saying it, yeah. you are saying that I am yeah. and it, again, it, it puts it onto them to consider the either the truth or the falsehood, falsehood of those words, and they they see it as false, yeah. and so they say we're going to put you to death. I mean, that's that's all we need. You they they put it back in his lips, where Jesus say, no, no, it's on yours. You know, <laughs> what are you going to do with it? And that's, I mean, ultimately, that's the the question that that comes to all of us: What are you going to do with this confession yeah. of of who Jesus is? Which I think is where, at least as as I read through Luke twenty two, is is the beauty of this, you know, all along Peter denies Jesus and we see by way of irony and contrast yeah. who he is the same with the mockery. But then when, when it comes to this trial, 
here's here's the truth. We've got Jesus as the Christ. We've got him as the son of God. There's no irony. There's no contrast there. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. I mean, and and the the choice that the Sanhedrin makes is to reject it and to send him off to his death, which gets into tomorrow's text. Yeah. But I mean, that's that. This is really, I think, a, a bit of a climax in the midst of this whole passion narrative. Is this very section? Yeah, yeah. They this mockery of a trial. The, well, in the mockery and the trial, um, fulfilling scripture, showing us who who Jesus truly is, and all in the midst of poor judgment from those that need to see the truth. We see clear connections to the prophet Isaiah, I think, especially the suffering servant passages. And um, as I already used uh, Isaiah chapter 11 there, all the events are bringing to light the promises God has made to his people from centuries prior. He said these things would happen through the prophets. They didn't believe that testimony. They still won't believe that testimony. And so now when the word is incarnate in front of them, they're still unwilling. So even being even while being subjected to the unfaithful and unjust treatment, God continues to prove the profound faithfulness of his word in service uh, to bring justice to our sin broken world. That's, that's Hmm. what Jesus is here for. And so we know it's not going to go any other way, even though we are pleading with the people in the text, you know, why can't you see the truth? Well, and I think that, you know, the way that we react to this, so why can't you see the truth then invites us to, put ourselves there. Okay. How, how do we respond? So we've got about right, five right. minutes here, Pastor Jones, to, to think through these texts it, for our own sakes. You know, what is, what do the tragic failures that we see in this text, how do we take that and make use of that in our lives as Christians? Yeah. Wonderful. Um, uh, you know, especially the kind of two sections to the text here, the, the stuff with Peter and then the stuff following with Peter's account of the denial uh, or the account of Peter's denial. I, I think it brings so many devotional lessons to our our own lives of faith. When we are con- confronted, when Peter is confronted with with his sin by the eyes of the watching Lord, the vision of the incarnate Word, Peter is moved to sincere, sorrowful repentance, as evidenced by his tears. And it reminds me of our own devotional and, and worship habits around confession and absolution, even today. Our divine services settings three and five use the line. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your present and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. It puts us in that place with Peter and and in the rubric that we have for individual confession and absolution after a general confession of, of our, of sin and the listing off of the specific sins that we're struggling with, we have the line, I am sorry for all of this and ask for grace. I want to do better. And I think for me, that is us perfectly sitting there with Peter staring into the compassionate eyes of our Lord, grieving and tearful over our sin, humbly asking for his mercy. Uh, that I think is the, the daily takeaway from, from this experience of Peter. We, we are right there with him. But then for the whole passage, it's a series of parallel reversals and ironies. They showcase the broken relationship between God and man. Our, mm. 
as we are broken by sin, our confessions of faith can be corrupted to denials. In our blindness to the word, we risk missing the revealed word of salvation right in front of us. In our eagerness to justify our own selfish actions and attitudes, we deal out nothing but injustice. And yet it is this very reality, our sin-broken existence, that moves our merciful and compassionate God to undergo all of these events in the first place. He meekly submits to the unjust world and anti-confessions to fulfill his promises of salvation. And when we are confronted with that word of grace, that word of mercy, his word of truth in Christ, it is you know, our prayer that we would join in weeping with Peter to receive the forgiveness and redemption that our Lord so freely offers us. Yeah, and then and then on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost, then to have that confession of who the Lord is, yes. that he is the true son of man and the true son of God restored to our lips, just like it was to Peter's, yes. so that we might speak that truth boldly and and confidently, just like our Lord does even before his accusers here on the Sanhedrin to, to come full circle and to be brought back into that renewed relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and to speak his name boldly before the world. Pastor Rick Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota, helping us today with Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. I always appreciate being here, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 22 or any of the gospel, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.